0: They said you're going to be a mole. A mole, I said? The animal that digs underground? The other kind of mole. There's another kind? Of course. To think of a mole as that which digs underground misunderstands the meaning of the mole as a spy. A spy's task is not to hide himself where no one can see him, since he will not be able to see anything himself. A spy's task is to hide where everyone can see him and where he can see everything. All right. This
1: is Wheel of Genre. We are reading a number of books from different genres, and then we spin the wheel. This time, we are reading spy novels. Guys, what have we read
2: this time? We've read The Spy Who Came In from the Cold by John Le Carre. we read Moonraker by Ian Fleming. And then we read A House of Fear by Ibn Isafi. This week, we're reading Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen. Winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Wow. <laughs>
1: I'm Zach. I'm interested in how this book takes the form of both an epistle and a confession. So you have you have the novel, but he's playing with all these other forms.
0: I'm John. I'm interested in the the spy and the figure of the spy in this book, perhaps as compared to other spy books we've read recently.
2: I'm Bob. I'm interested in that we're all spies, every last one of us in our in our regular little lives. And you know, there's characters in here who aren't the main spy, but they're living like spies in different
0: aspects of their lives. I can, I can see what you mean. I think, well, it goes back to that sort of quote about the mole, I suppose. What do you mean by this idea of the, but multiple people living like spies? Because we've got obviously like we've got the, the main character, the spy, who I don't think we ever learned his name, but he is, you know, ultimately the, the, just the captain. Yeah. yeah, the captain in this book. And he is definitely a spy. But you're saying like you think there's like a lot of spies in this sort of like, nested all around. I think it is, you know, it's a spy book. So
2: we're looking at people who are doing spy work. But this book looks also a lot at identity, and I think we saw that in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold about Lemus, Alec Lemus, whether he becomes a drunk and loses his identity completely or whether it's all part of the show. But in this, we have different characters who compare themselves to spies. We have characters who get stuck living in a different kind of life. Someone who grew up in Vietnam and is suddenly displaced, comes to America and then plans to go back but never does, and then feel disconnected from their original identity. And then we have a main spy who is called a bastard over and over and over again. He says he's he's either spit on and then called a bastard or called a bastard and then spit on. So all of these people like have to live in ways that feel strange or acted kind of like a spy. Well, he's also permanently embedded into a
1: situation. So to, get, to give kind of like a background here, what you have is a person who is working for the Viet Cong, who was embedded into the what would you call that the Isn't that the Liberation army so he w- he was involved with them and then at the at the fall of saigon he was actually taken to the united states so now what he is is a vietnamese communist who's living inside the united states pretending to be an exiled pro capitalism pro democracy vietnamese person but actually writing these reports and acting as an embedded agent, and doing the will of following orders from Ho Chi Minh City. And it's interesting because he's he's lived this life for most of his life. I think over half of his life now
0: has been in the United States. Yeah, because he was even scouted as like a student or something in university, he says. Wasn't he even younger than that, wasn't he? Like when he was nine years old, they spotted his talent. So I think during his entire life, essentially, he's been an outsider on the inside.
1: He says, but most actors spent more time with their masks off than on, whereas in my case, it was the reverse. No surprise then that sometimes I dreamed of trying to pull a mask off my face, only to realize that the mask was my face. Nothing like a good, uh, highly symbolic dream image that, you know, kind of lets the reader know exactly the the psychology of the character.
2: The idea of a mask, Uh, I just went and saw Mission Impossible. Man, those movies are fun, but ridiculous. When Tom Cruise pulls off his mask, it's a huge part of spy novels. We've seen James Bond in disguise. We've seen silly disguises. We've seen serious disguises where you have to live. I mean, the captain's been there, like you said, almost two decades. Lemus is drunk for a whole year. So spies have to live this certain way. But I like the idea of a mask because when he gets captured again, by pro-communist forces in North Vietnam, he meets up with his, well, on accident, he meets the commissar, who turns out to be his old friend, whose face has been burned by napalm and he should have died. But now he looks monstrous and he doesn't want to go back to his family because it will scare them. So the idea of a face that you can't have anymore or a face that you have to put on, he also compares to himself later when he becomes a man with two minds. So we have these kind of interesting, almost James Bond-like ideas, but they're representing more of a psychology, I guess, than something just cool
0: looking or strange yeah i think that was a really like you know impressive moment on my on my imagination when you know it turns out the man is the commissar but he's fatally burned like he's got his cheshire cat grin because he's literally got no like lips to cover his teeth so when he smiles it just looks horrid and monstrous monstrous and he's just in constant pain and just exposure to things and that seems almost like the mask has been ripped off by the end you know and Mm. you know here's man sort of the ugly representation of this which will you know is, which ultimately like, is the real exposure of the character, because the whole book is, you know, sort of in form, take the form of a kind of a like confession. But for the vast majority of the book, we don't know who he's confessing to. He talks about, like, you know, my, my confessor and the commandant. So you think, you know, but who is he writing this confession to? Uh, so the whole book is sort of building up to this big reveal of like, well, you know, who is this book revealed to? Why, why is he writing this book? And it becomes very clear towards the end why that is. And I think that's when we see this faceless character. So it's like, I don't know, like, do you think the, you know, the book seems to be aiming at taking the mask off, separating the mask from the face in a way? Because he has a literal out-of-body experience, if you recall, in those final scenes.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the the book functions by, along the, the logic of the confession in the sense of like, we're leading to the point of knowledge being transferred. Yeah. The, the formal way that that takes place. Is you know we're given a very seemingly straightforward novel. If you think back to all of our other spy novels we've read, they've been very straightforward narratives. But our novel here is straightforward until it turns, it, until it uses this like metafictional turn where suddenly we realize that what we've been reading is actually his confession that he's been writing yeah. in prison. So we're, we're we're taken out of the narrative. We we've gone meta with it. And that's the first revelation. I think the second revelation is probably the fate of the communist spy. Was that in the United States? Basically, the the rape scene that he was kind of suppressing within his mind. That it took his torture and out of body experience to finally for him to be able to either acknowledge it, write about it, or remember it. Boom. You know, I, I it's not clear to me how much was like actually suppressed by him versus how much was just being hidden and not talked about. You know, what was he aware of versus like what was actually suppressed within his mind or repressed within his mind?
0: I guess it's the better word.
1: Yeah, but it's all it's the, this book is a, a progression of coming to knowledge.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. It, but it's 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 interesting that, you know, there's a kind of like interesting idea there where at the end, it's like he's, he's feeling like he's given a genuine confession. It's like he's been forced to admit things just in the language that they want to hear it. Because he's, he's obviously a member of the Viet Cong, but he's been so deeply buried and immersed in like the operate, you know, the opposition army, so the Viet, Viet, Vietnamese government army, and also in America. And he's been sort of hidden away there. He's always been a bastard. He's never really belonged. So he did not really belong in Vietnam. He doesn't really belong in America. And he's this character who also doesn't really belong with communists, but also he doesn't really belong with the anti-communist movements as well, um, the reactionary movements. So he's, he's just not really involved anywhere. And that seems to be very much like his character. But the self-knowledge he comes to, seems to be that this idea of nothing is more important than independence and freedom that's his like big realization at the end the sort of the revelation as it were that comes of these all these confessions and all this suffering this the climax is this realization that nothing is more important than freedom and that the language that they, the Viet cong want to hear that you know the communist party the national liberation front wants to hear it or at least the commandant, who's got who seems more vulgar than his old friend man but they take in the literal meaning of like nothing is more important than you know in as freedom independence and freedom are the most important things. And yet in Vietnam the sort of idea is, well, actually the party has been made more important than independence and freedom. And, you know, they're just it's it's basically Vietnamese people oppressing themselves rather than being oppressed by the French or the American colonizers and conquerors. So I think, you know, it's it's very interesting that this is where he comes to. And then at that point he laughed. And He finds it hysterical, this sort of like very weird, like nihilistic a- a- awakening, as it were. So, I mean, that seems to me like what knowledge he comes to out of all this. Um, would you agree with that assessment?
2: Mm, I think the uh, I think so. There's a good quote where he talks about the, the slogan that Ho Chi Minh uses becoming an empty suit that no longer suits the, the situation yeah. in Vietnam. And it's the one that you just said where he says, while nothing is more precious than independence and freedom, as what Ho Chi Minh was saying, he says, nothing is more important. We had gone from the vanguard of political change to the rear guard hoarding power. So yeah. to have been, to make sure that independence and freedom are the most important thing to no longer
0: defending that at all. And I think it's also like this other meaning of nothing where it's like, you know, nothing is more important than independence or freedom. You know, what's the name? N- nothing. Yeah. You know, it's almost like the name of, you know, our that it it's communist Vietnam rather than, you know, American occupied, like French occupied or American controlled Vietnam. Instead of this, it's just a different wording, but Mm. fundamentally other people's conditions massively improved. I don't think Mm. he seems to be suggesting that they are. So, you know, it's almost like nothing. This this idea, this name, this concept, this abstraction is Mm. more important than the lived experience of being independent and free. He's asked this question as a
1: riddle quite early on in his interrogation, and he gives the correct answer. But the way that... It's, it's rejected at that time. And then later, to paraphrase what he says is, if you're a teacher, you don't want your students just blindly parroting the answers back to you. You want them to sincerely believe the answers that you've indoctrinated yeah. them to tell you. Yeah, You know, it's not yeah. just two plus two is four, parrot it back. You want them to to know it yeah. to the core of their being, that one plus one equals two or yeah. two plus two, you know, their multiplication table. So it takes... To the end of the book and a whole new series of deprivation tortures for him to truly and sincerely believe that. Yeah. And I think that is
0: one of the main themes of the book, isn't it? This idea of torture mm-hmm. and the idea that there's almost something productive to torture in a way. Mm. Like the very start of the book, before the book begins, it has the opening, you know, quote. Sure, there's a fancy name for that. But the quote is from Fried- Friedrich Nietzsche on the genealogy of morals. It says, let's not become gloomy as soon as we hear the word torture. In this particular case, there is plenty to offset and mitigate that word even something to laugh at. And after his torture in this book, he has this sort of realization and he, he laughs. Mm. The book so I think you're right. The book is sort of earlier in the book, he's asked this question, but even the, right, the very start of the book, the very opening quote directly ties into that. And I think there's another important torture scene and there's two other really important torture scenes, one of which he is very open about, but there's another in which he admits to doing nothing. So there's like a third mm-hmm. meaning to that. So there's one scene where he tortures... No, yeah. You know, he's working with the communists, but in order to do that, he's, on, he's a mole. He's on the mm-hmm. inside with the American, the, the, the Vietnamese army that's supported by the Americans. Mm-hmm. And he's trained how to torture. And to do this, he has to torture a Viet Cong soldier. And eventually he does torture him by figuring him out. And he feels really guilty about what he did, this thing that he did. So he confesses that. He says, what more could I confess? I've confessed the worst thing I ever did. I've confessed also to these two other murders I did of ultimately probably innocent people or people who didn't deserve to die. Also in the name of this American-led Vietnamese government, I've killed multiple people who are either neutral or on my own side as a mole. I've confessed to all of that. What more do you want from me? But the one kind of thing he does have to admit is the time he did absolutely nothing. Not the, time the times he did something where he essentially allowed three Vietnamese policemen to rape a Vietnamese agent, a Viet Cong agent, who he knows is on his side. And this is, you know, years back he just lets them do it. He doesn't do anything to intervene. He does nothing. So then this other, this idea of nothing is the other thing that he needs to realize. So, you know, torture very much like shapes this book and sort of like seems to be the sort of linchpin of it, I think. And I think there's kind of, I don't know, maybe a, quite a difficult book to read at times, I think, and very sort of strange and quite violent at times. Yeah, this idea of leading towards a conclusion
2: as to why someone is doing everything and why a movement should be happening, or I guess what is the motivation for a movement is a constant thing that we've run into in all of our spy novels where it's a conversation about why be a spy or why follow the movement and support the movement. Like Bond and Mati in the uh, Casino Royale, we've talked about this many times, but Bond says, I can't do it anymore. I'm not going to be a spy. There's no clear good or bad. Matisse says, defend your friends. That's the conclusion they come away with that. Fiedler and Lemus talk about Very this for a long time. Defend your friends. Then Fiedler and Lemus, and the spy who came in from the cold, Fiedler keeps interrogating Lemus again and again and again, like, why are you here? Why are the Americans doing what they're doing? They seem to have no real reason. And Fiedler says, well, I will do anything to advance towards peace and progress for my country. I'll even put a bomb on a bus. And then he says, Lemus, why are you doing it? Lemus says, well, I guess you're just all bastards, so I want to stop you. doesn't really give a true answer. But then this the captain's journey towards never really being certain why he's doing it, except coming away with nothing, is an interesting take. Is there any positive aspect of the nothing, or is it is it nihilism?
0: Oh, sure. We don't get much time to see at the end of the book, like what how his life has been transformed. He, he seems to be embracing life again somehow, but I'm not quite yeah. sure what you know follows from that in terms of his life. What do you think? Zach?
1: well, the book the book ends with him leaving. The torture camps, the the the, yeah. the prison camp, and now he's on a boat and he's going somewhere. Yeah,
0: he's one of the boat people.
1: What did the the he's with the boat people? Do we know where he's going?
0: I got the impression don't... it was back to the United States, but it wasn't. It wasn't explicit. I don't know, and it just seems to me like yeah, I, 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 it's not explicit at all, is it? That's I think what's difficult to. Because there's nowhere else that it it would have set up for him to go. He's not.
1: He wouldn't be going to China. He wouldn't no. be going to Laos. You know. So it seems to me that he's returning to the United States is well, kind of I the think... logical destination.
0: Yeah. You wouldn't be getting
1: on a boat with 150 people crammed into a space that can only hold 50 people, reeking of fish. You know, to get smuggled further into Vietnam. You know what I mean? So if if he's become a boat person and he is getting smuggled to the U.S. or, or you know, wherever, it does seem to me that he's taking his place back as a mole, as someone who he's reintegrating back in American society in some well, way. But yeah, there there is a sequel to this book. Mm. So I guess maybe the first question we need to ask is, where is
0: our character in the first 10 pages of that book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it says here. But we are not primitive, so we are not to be pitied. Talking about himself, having become one of the boat people, he says, "If and when we reach safe harbor, it will hardly be a surprise if we, in turn, turn our backs on the unwanted human nature being uh, what uh, we know of it. Turn our backs on the unwanted human being, human nature being what we know of it. And yet, we are not cynical. So he's talking about how essentially, yeah, they, they don't really know where they're going. They're almost like, mi- you know, Im- sort of migrants and the ocean you know, in a little dinghy. I think." they're supposed to represent these sort of people who are just have no place to go, these placeless people now. And it's like, they'd hope they're going to find safe harbor, but they might not do. They're sort of, you know, floating into the unknown. So it seems like he's become one of those people, almost like the subaltern, as you might call it. He's deconstructed himself so much that now he's just one of the boat people who he previously had a role in constructing the identity of, or at least ostensibly trying to do. So when the movie was being made, you know, he worked with the boat people yeah. and advocated for them to try and get them represented by essentially inter- intervening with a fictional version of like similar to apocalypse now or something, he works was a consultant on this yeah. movie, which is a weird detour that it takes, but, Oh, I love that. Yeah. I but love then that. He comes, I love that comes back yeah. at the end where he becomes one of those boat people. Right. Cause he's on this movie and yeah. he's, he's, he's meeting this famous director of Hollywood and they start to say, all right, I've shown me a script. You, you, you've been in Vietnam. You're a smart guy. Tell me if it's realistic. And he responds to him and said, no, it's it's not realistic at all. You've not represented people well. You've not even got the screams right. Yeah. And he said, what do you mean screams? He said, you think screams are like, yeah. you know, a homogenous thing. They're not. Everyone's got a different scream. People have got different screams. You've got the screams wrong in your film. And the initially, oh, that sounds like nonsense. Yeah. What do you know? But then he brings him in anyway. And ostensibly, he's trying to get the representation of Vietnamese people in Hollywood cinema better. He wants to give them speaking roles and humanize them and get the details realistic to do this they end up hiring a bunch of boat people refugees i think essentially i guess and he you know helps them along and he advocates for them but then in the end when he watches the movie towards the end of the book he's not even on the credits he's been erased
2: Mm -hmm. erased now
0: at the end of the book he's become one of those refugees one of those boat people who he was previously not you know was previously in a sense above in insofar as he could help them he was above them in, in a sense on the ladder but He's been so deconstructed yeah. now by the end of the book that he's just floating into the ocean just hoping to find safe harbor. But he's not. He's optimistic about this. He's fine. He's alive. He's realized that nothing yeah. is more important than independence and freedom. So,
1: yeah. Let, let me just read some spoilers for the next book because here's the Wikipedia summary. The novel is about a man who refers to himself as nameless in Vietnamese, Vodan, and arrives in Paris after having been tortured by communists. Vaudan dislikes being called a book person. That's the entire summary of the second book. So, so so we know he goes to Paris, and we know that he has taken on the identity of a boat
2: person upon the second novel. I love
0: it. I was going to read that now.
2: There's mm-hmm. a lot about identity and, like you said, deconstruction of a person and his identity in this book. When he talks to the commandant, he's saying, look, I am. I, I hate America. I am anti-American. And the commandant says, we don't want you to be anti-American. Americans need anti-Americans because that's part of the other half. We just want you to be 100% Vietnamese. And he says, what does that even mean? And now at the end, when he's starting to, he's been tortured so much that he does have that out of body experience. He starts referring to himself as we. He's no longer I. Mm. It's all we. And he calls himself the man of two minds as contrast or (laughs) not really contrast, but a comparison to the man with no face, the man with the mask off. He's now someone who can somehow hold the two truths of anti-communism and communism at once, but that is not what the commandant wanted. They still release him because he apparently is delivering what the commandant and the commissar want, but I don't know. I think his identity in this, this next book will be very interesting. He's trying to convey himself
1: as a type of person, but he's held back by how his torturers see him. And this is a recurring dynamic that plays out throughout the book not only how, you know, the people he's embedded with see him, but also, you know, he reads this book. He has this kind of Bible that he sleeps with from Dr. Richard Head. It's called Asian Communism and the Oriental Mode of Destruction on Understanding and Defeating the Marxist Threat to Asia. These kind of books were popular in the late 60s. I think I read, oh, I read Kissinger's yeah. book and, and he's full of, you know, he refers to people like this who write these kind of like, they are Western scholars who write these expert opinions on the Vietnamese, on Asian communism, and how to win. When he finally meets Richard Head, what he says to him is he reads the book. He, you know, he has it underlined, double underlined, triple underlined, dog eared. There's a joke that goes around that he's read he's the only person in the room who's actually finished the book. And what he says is he's not learning anything new per se. About the Vietnamese people from the book, he's learning about he's learning about America, based off of how America reflects him and back to himself. Yeah, you know, Amer- like you can almost view America as a medium. America is a mirror of which he's interested in how the light changes from when it bounces off the light source back to his field of vision. What does America do to that? And you can see that dynamic also. In the lovely subplot where he goes and films basically Platoon (laughs) or, you know, he he goes and films a Vietnamese war movie and it's it's a farce of history and a farce of his culture.
2: Dr. Dickhead. He brings that up twice where he says that the Vietnamese are the best anthropologists or I guess refugees are the best anthropologists of the Americans anywhere because they're listening constantly. So he's like, I know more probably about the Americans and the Americans do about themselves.
1: Yeah. I don't know how I missed that. The guy's name is Dickhead. Yeah. Dr. It's Dickhead. It's really funny.
0: I was reading the whole time. thinking Richard Head. like you always <laughs> mentioned that. his the name as well. Brilliant. Could be a professor head. It wasn't. No, she knew it was Richard head. Yeah.
1: So I, I think the, the interesting thing about this reflection and misrepresentation is it works both ways in this book in that what you have in this book is someone who's taking an account of America from the perspective of a Vietnamese diehard communist and reporting back to his superiors, yeah. So the 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 little joys of this book are his representations of America. What I'll just read a quote. It's it's kind of long, but I'll end it maybe a little early, but we'll see. Not for me the study of highways, sewage systems, or other such useful enterprises. Instead, the mission assigned me by man, my fellow conspirator, was to learn American ways of thinking. My war was psychological. To that end, I read American history and literature, perfected my grammar and absorbed the slang, smoked pot and lost my virginity. In short, I earned not only my bachelor's but my master's degree, becoming expert in all manner of American studies. Even now, I can see quite clearly where I first read the words of that greatest of American philosophers, Emerson, on a lawn by an iridescent grove of jacaranda trees. My attention was divided between the exotic, tawny coeds and halter tops and shorts, sunning themselves on beds of June grass, And the words so stark and black on a bare white page. Consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Nothing Emerson wrote was ever truer of America. That was a lot of words, but basically I I like this idea of him picking eight to 10
0: words, a single sentence of Emerson and being like, this is America. Well, yeah. And he comes under fire for this a lot at the end of the book, ironically, because it's, you know, he goes way back with this guy, man. I mean, it's such a, I don't know. I'm almost tempted to, there's such a, fast plot to this book it really is quite a large book quite a lot happens but he begins as blood brothers with this two other boys Man and Bon who actually stick up for him in opposition to everyone else in Vietnam who just dismisses him as a bastard because his French priest like reverend father who is like the town reverend doesn't acknowledge him so he you know he's constantly a, you know an outcast an ostracized because of he's a bastard and people come up to him and that's like his trigger they all say he's a, he's a bastard these guys defend him and then he falls in with in particularly, who has, you know, a lot of interesting Marx and, and communism and the, you know, sort of revolutionary forces in the country. And he gets Ma- the captain, who never know his name, involved. And he is, yes, supposed to be this, this mole, right? This, this not this subterranean animal that's hiding, but rather this thing in plain sight that's right there can see everything, but isn't itself noticed anymore. You know, sort of stays out of sight even while being able to see everything. And yeah, always sticking out just a little bit. You know, he's never quite fitting in. You know, he's he's in this function, but then in to do that, he's obviously got to, like you say, smoke pot, listen to the Rolling Stones, you know, sleep with American women, all these other things. And then when he comes back, his his whole confession at the end is when he finds himself having returned to Vietnam and he's now captured by the Viet Cong who are re-educating him and all the other prisoners of war. But he's been re-educated, even though he's already a member of the Communist Party, because they don't recognize him as like them. He doesn't speak their language. He doesn't quote Vietnamese poets. He doesn't parrot the slogans of the Vietnamese forces. He's been living in America his entire life, right? He, he quotes the Rolling Stones. His idea of freedom comes from a very different source than their idea of freedom. And that's, that's what the commandant said to him. It's like, you, you're not a you know, loyal Viet Cong ally. You're a bourgeois intellectual. You know, you're, you're too American for the Vietnamese. So I think sort of a very interesting aspect of the book as well, to watch. Then you know, how, how long can you stay undercover before you inevitably become what you are fighting against and then you're no longer recognized by your own side? It's sort of a very yeah. difficult struggle he has.
1: His exposure to Vietnamese culture while he's over there is with the exiles. So, like, he's not learning the, the communist poets of the party, you know, the hot poet yeah. of the party who's talking about a class struggle. He's listening to music by the singers who sing these kind of like lovelorn songs that are both to a lost lover and to a lost Saigon. You know
0: what I mean? Like while being Vietnamese, he's of a different Vietnamese stripe, it would seem. Yeah, definitely. Because he's so immersed in this this other kind of culture. I think that's also, you bring up an interesting point that, that I think another thing that sort of is very interesting is he sees his relationship with the general and with Lana, who's a singer of these songs. You know, he works for, as the captain, he works for the general, who... They ultimately flee from Vietnam and take refuge in America, in you know, in essentially hidden identities. And then there, the general retains some power because as the leading guy. But his daughter Lana really becomes immersed in American culture as well, even more so than than man. Uh, no, man is than the captain is, and she's singing these songs and he ends up sort of having a relationship with her at the end. And that's like a big betrayal of the general. So I think, yeah, he is this idea that he's sort of corrupted. He's not staying with Vietnamese values, and he's taking interest in other kind of culture and supporting. The Americanization of Vietnam, like, it does raise the legitimate question marks about his, you know, how he doesn't belong with the Viet Cong, anyway. He's serving, there, but he's very different from them. Guys, one thing we didn't talk about is
1: what makes this book genre? Is this book genre? And why or why
0: not is it genre? I think it meets a lot of genre tropes. The spies, I've already mentioned the mask and the unmasking of the faith trope. The captain is very similar in many ways to a James Bond type. He sleeps with multiple attractive women from different nationalities in different continents. He's good at stuff, generally speaking, except for killing. Very different there. And I just think as well, just this the whole narrative of, of a spy, a mole, you know, undercover but hiding in plain sight. Also, the big revelation at the end that you know, man has become twisted and become the enemy, and he's the big bad in a way. And just this sort of shock ending of like, does the powers of work that we didn't anticipate. Are all very very reminiscent of a lot of spy books we've been reading recently. I think so. I, I definitely would argue that there's a lot of genre tropes in this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just read a great quote. I should have written it down, but it was basically the idea that genre functions by rewriting things that work. I'm gonna I'm gonna get this quote so I could pull it out. For every episode in the you know the next hundred episodes, but basically it's the idea that like you can tell that something is a genre because it essentially steals something from a previous work, <laughs> and it's the details here that make this work genre in the sense of like you know every James Bond villain has a physically mangled villain. <laughs> well. The revelation of the torture at the end is his friend, man, and he's physically mangled. He's without a face. He's been burned off. I mean, I guess I I didn't think about this in the moment, but also the idea that the person who is torturing you, you know, the the final boss, so to speak, is actually your close friend. That's a very like mission impossible Mm -hmm. thing of like they take off the mask and it was this guy all along and he's been backstabbing you. And he, he was holding the puppet strings the entire time. There's countless other ways this, this rewrites those spy tropes. But yeah. Betrayal
2: at the end is very spy-like. I think another very subtle way, too, is the excellence of the character and noting the excellence of the character. For the other spies, we've seen like James Bond's the best shot in all of England. He's also the best driver. He's good at everything he does. This character is always the, the best translator, the best English speaker, the best thinker in any room. Yeah. He always outdoes everyone. Uh, it's a subtle way of being in the spy genre, but I think it's definitely
0: honoring the spy genre in, in doing Cause that. Because he outwits the yeah. Vietnamese soldiers torturing, you know? He says, like, all right, I'm going oh, <laughs> to right, show you that I'm the smarter one, right? That's that's his, yeah. he, what he thinks is his big crime before the ultimate revelation. But he's used the intelligence there to outsmart this ultimately very intelligent, like...
2: The philosopher, prisoner. he calls so, him.
0: Yeah, yeah, the philosopher. So, yeah. you know, the idea is he's very smart. But he's also, you know, I guess... Yeah, I, don't, I, don't know, I guess maybe all spies need a sort of kryptonite or, or, or an Achilles heel as well. He's not very good at killing people. Yeah. But luckily, he's got yeah. some is, so...
1: The way he talks about picking up women actually reminded me a lot of the way Ian Fleming talks about poker. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. Baccarat or whatever game James Bond is playing in Casino Royale. Yeah. Like as Bond is game. playing poker or the casino games, he he kind of has this mental narration that's kind of like reading from a textbook of like, well, first you do this, and then well, they play this, so now you know you have to do this. If it's above a sixteen, then you know. <laughs> like yeah. he has it all figured out in his head, and in the same way, he's talking about trying to seduce the singer, and he's like, well. You offer her a cigarette first because you yeah. want her to reject the cigarette, not you. It's easier, you know, yeah. And then, you know, she accepts the cigarette. It's, you know, now Now we make statements. We don't ask questions, mm, you know. Yeah. It's,
0: that reminded me of Bond. Mm-hmm. Seems like you really, you've really been taking close notes there, Zach.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, cigarettes? I got to get back to smoking. <laughs> I've
0: heard if you blow smoke in the face, like, really aggressively, that works treat.
1: <laughs> well, there was a great line in there where... Or he's like, she blew the smoke away from me, but I would have been ecstatic if she blew the smoke in my face, on my arms, all over my clothing. And I guess that right there, that smoke line is really the counter argument for genre, because (laughs) I think most genre fiction, most kind of pulp fiction, most, you know, whatever we're talking is primarily written for the narrative, whereas this is written for the character more than anything else. Yeah. These are some of the longest paragraphs I think we've encountered it any book Mm. because he's just stacking sentences, details, anecdotes,
0: asides, you know, it's, it's all there. Great lists. It really is. And I think, you know, I've not highlighted too many like clear examples, but what really well-written book, some delightful prose, lots of great similes. I remember his friend Bon is described as like a good looking man who's been involved in a serious accident or something. And that's just how he looks. And you're like, of course, I can see that now.
1: Oh, I actually I saved that one in my wallet. Was a black and white photograph of Bon and his family. Bon had the appearance of a good-looking man beaten to a pulp. Except that was simply his god-given face. Yeah. <laughs> Not even his paratroopers beret and crisply iron tiger-striped fatigues could distract from his parachute-like ears. His chin perpetually tucked into the folds of his neck, and his flat nose bent hard right, the same as his
0: politics. Yeah, that's good writing. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost it is almost like another genre show, I would say. John mm. a blank, Mike Hammer. Oh, Splean, Mickey Splean, Mickey Splane. Mm. Splane. Mickey explain. Mickey Splean. He's got a little Mickey Splean kind of like, yeah. to it a little bit. I think you know he's a, he's a smart. He's a you know, he's, he's silver tongue. he's a sharp yeah. talker. You know because he's writing from the first person, but he he speaks very well. He speaks. He knows he speaks American. Yeah. You know well, and it, 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 but he does not speak English. He speaks American. I think that's a cool. We we detail. get
1: a kind of glimpse. So maybe how we should put this is we get a metafictional glimpse of the kind of aesthetics of this book in that, you know, we read it all the way through and then it's revealed that everything we've read is the confession that he's written in prison. And what he says is he wrote the confession one time and it was rejected. So then he took it and he wrote it again and wrote it again and wrote it again. You know, so you get this idea that I mean, the whole time I was reading this book, I'm like, this is a very overwritten book. You know, he's clearly gone through and really created a sketch and then filled out details and then even more details that, you know, and, and the way the book reads feels like the way the character claims it was written. Like he <laughs> wrote it 10 times. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and that final draft it, it, right at the end is something he has to do before he's set free from the communist where he says, right, we're finally satisfied with your confession. Now we need you to do it word for word. And it takes yeah. him months, but he eventually gets through it. And that's. You know, this is the final product. This is that one that he's copied down yeah. for months uh, <laughs> word for word. And it does have that feel to it. And, you know, I like I say it is great writing, but yeah, I agree, it's a little bit overwritten at times. I think maybe that's one sort of minor fault with the book, but I would say in general I found it mm. very engrossing. And there's one more there's one more scene. There's one more scene I think I'd like to talk about. You know which one I'm talking about. The mall? Squid. The squid. <laughs> the squid <laughs> Yeah.
1: I forgot about the squid. I actually a I burned what the a squid scene. from my memory. I, I'm never going to forget <laughs> about the squid.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. No squid was safe from me. Yeah, <laughs> You, you talk, tell this story about when he was a kid and he was raised by a single mom. who was only like 17 when she had him or something. She was pregnant 13, by a friend. 13. 13 when he had him. And, you know, she's struggling to put food on the table for him. But he, he comes to about puberty. He's like 11 years old or something, 12, 13 years old. And he starts to, you know, get, uh, you know, starts going through puberty. starts becoming aware of, of you know, sex and the sexual acts and all these things. But obviously, he's not got any partner going on. He's a bastard, so nobody will give him the time of day. And then he sees the squid. And he thinks, their mum's prepared for lunch. He's got a squid laid out for, for dinner that night. He's looking at the squid and he's thinking, somehow, I know what that looks like. <laughs> does exactly what you would expect with the squid. And then he thinks, oh my God, what are we going to have for dinner? We don't have that many squid. Mum's going to realize one's gone. Okay. So drains it out, scoops it out, cleans it out. thinks, but I can't give this to my dear mother. I can't give her this squid. So, all right, so he makes slits in this squid so he can know which one's been, you know, contaminated and weighs. He's waiting for his mum to get dinner ready. He's waiting for his mum to get dinner ready. The mum and his mum says, right, dinner's ready. Like a ball, he's at the kitchen, finds the one with the slits on it, cuts it, gets on his plate, he's all right. <laughs> fine, fine. And then he tells about how he's sitting down with his mum. And then his mum looks over at him and says, honey, you're not eating your dinner. Is everything okay? And so he's like, yeah, yeah, it, it's great, mum. It's great. Yum. Horrible. Horrible. <laughs> I'll never look at <laughs> a squid the same way again. Yeah. Oof.
1: When you cook squid, squid kind of swells. If you slit, if you if you make gashes in the body of a squid, it looks, you, you can tell. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I just saw it from like the mother's perspective of why is one of these squids <laughs> mutilated? And why does my son continually, because this happens more than once, right? Why does yes. the son continually dash for the, the marked squid? The squid, which I did not make these marks, but after it's been cooked and roasted, you know, you, could, you can see the gashes in them because the, the skin splits. If you, go, you guys have had fried squid. I just had it in Taiwan oh. last week, you know, or at least I saw it on a steak. And you can see those gashes after it's been fried. Yeah, So that's, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, of.
0: that's very true. That's very true. And I mean, you know, I think the book does raise that story for a particular point. I think his point was that, you know, why, why is it we find it more difficult to talk about masturbation than murder? Why is why is Murder um, less than yeah. a dirty word? The masturbation. Shouldn't we be all just, you know? And this is again, he's a bourgeois intellectual. He's into the idea of free love. He practices free love with a Japanese American who did not who just considers himself American. And so he's, you know, he's trying to find his place in the American world in this way. And he's saying, why not free love? And this is a very radical idea in Vietnam. No. So he had a band a lot of love, the traditional values which the Communist Party would have stuck to, because they've never left Vietnam, they've never known anything else. So they're still stuck in the old ways, reciting yeah. the old poets. And this, you know, the, the the story is raised for a good reason, but mm-hmm. yeah, somehow uh, I think years from now and, and the look of the book that sympathizing. and the one thing I'm going to retain from that is, oh, that's got a really interesting passage about squids in it.
1: So somehow I had burned it from my memory. I had repressed <laughs>
0: it, but thanks for Do you you remember the, it, yeah. um, the the catfish joke. Oh, the catfish. No. One. I didn't really get the catfish I, one. Why were the catfish in the toilet? So I don't get that. Well, apparently it
2: was just you would, you would make a latrine like over a stream. So you just yeah. set up a little toilet over the stream. Yeah. So then whatever you did would be gone. Yeah. But they, he said to the from the, the guy from Omaha or wherever he's from was making all these sets. He says, you know how you can tell a catfish that's a latrine catfish? You look at their eyes and they're cross-eyed. What do you mean they're cross-eyed? Oh, well, yeah. They're staring up at assholes all the time.
1: <laughs>
2: all right, guys. I think uh,
1: we've, we've, we've hit that mark in our recording. Shall we call it? squids and asshole
0: squids and catfish yeah
1: Yeah. I think that's the place to stop alright talk to you later Bob and John
2: talk to you later John Zach talk to you later Zach and Bob